Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. Some of us are saying that to believe that indeed it is happy Lord's Day. Saints, we don't have to fret because Christ rose from the dead on the third day so that our hope is not in vain. God has fulfilled his promise by sending his only begotten son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. Saints, Christ has defeated death and sin and now we are eagerly awaiting for his return. So we say to each other every Lord's Day, happy Lord's Day, because that truth will never change, though all of our seasons might differ. My name is Peter, and I am one of 132 members here of Bethany Baptist Church. I am one of four pastors serving here. And I want to be able to confidently say that it is my joy and delight to bring God's word. But I come with um, a little bit of discouragement and even reluctance in bringing God's word because this week was sort of tough for me. Yet, I know that God's word does not return void. It's, it always accomplishes its will. So I trust in God's work through his word. And because of that, let's turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through chapter 3, verse 5. The page number is, I don't know, someone can shout that out for me. 850, thank you. That's Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Hear then the words of our living God. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another? profaning the covenant of our ancestors. Judah has acted treacherously. And a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? 
godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have you wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, he is delighted with them, or else, where is the God of justice? See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers, adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me says the Lord of armies. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to enjoy Christ even as your word is being preached here. Edify the body here. Mature us and make us radiant in your word. Father, we are awaiting for your son's return, when all things will be finally restored. We're awaiting for that day eagerly. And as we wait, help us to recognize these under-the-radar sins so that we might wait faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. amen. What are you waiting for? We're all waiting for something, aren't we? You might be waiting for lunch. <laughs> you might be waiting for Sunday afternoon nap after that lunch. Sunday, noon, Sunday afternoon naps are glorious. Amen. <laughs> you might be waiting for a promotion, a job transition, a birth of your child, your wife conceiving, getting married. Moving, renovating, even upcoming vacation. I have a four-week vacation coming up. <laughs> Friends, our, our, our lives are filled with waiting. But all of our waiting is a pointer to what we are ultimately waiting for, which is final restoration. 
Ever since the fall, all of creation, whether conscious or not, are waiting for God to restore all things. We see the things that are broken or breaking. We feel the frustration of our sins and the sins of others. We feel the effect of it. And we trust in God's promise of his final return. But the question is, how can we faithfully wait? People of God in the days of Malachi had become tired of waiting for God. Tired of waiting for God's promise to come true. And in becoming tired, they were deviating. And in their eyes, deviating very slightly. But we know that small deviation in your direction results in a different destination. So the prophet Malachi was sent by the Lord to correct his people. Today we're in part two of Malachi series that you probably don't remember. It's been about four months since I preached Malachi, and we're back at it again. We have one more to go after this. Maybe next year. As we camp in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through chapter 3, verse 5, here is the main goal if you're taking notes. The main goal of today's sermon text is recognize your under-the-radar sins and tremble before him so that you may wait faithfully for God's final restoration. That's recognize your under-the-radar sins and tremble before God so that you may wait faithfully for God's final restoration. What are some of the under-the-radar sins that you ought to recognize? First, recognize your religious idolatry and tremble. Recognize your religious idolatry and tremble. That's verses 10 through 12. Second, recognize familial unfaithfulness and tremble. That's verses 13 through 16. And lastly, recognize your belittling of God's justice and tremble. That's chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Recognize religious idolatry, familial unfaithfulness, and belittling of God's justice. Now, because you guys don't remember a lot about Malachi since it's been four months, let me give you a brief context. God's people had finally returned to the promised land after their long exile. They were kicked out of the land because of their unfaithfulness. They were promised something very glorious from the one and only God. But instead of ruling, they were being ruled by foreign nations. The temple that God has promised blessings would flow out of was destroyed. But after all the harsh years, they were finally returning to the promised land. And they did return to the promised land. Walls of Jerusalem that were destroyed were being built back up. The destroyed temple was now being built. Well, at least the foundation of the temple was built. And now people were waiting for something miraculous because God wasn't going to not keep his promise. But things didn't seem to change. They were waiting for weeks, months, and even years, but nothing seemed to change. 
Meanwhile, all the other foreign nations are stronger, more significant than the Israelites. Where is God's promise? When is he going to fulfill his promise? And then they were deviating from God's commands again. Look down with me to verse 11. Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the first under-the-radar sin that you ought to recognize is your religious idolatry. What did the people of God do? According to what we read, they were acting treacherously. In other translations, it's translated as breaking faith, betraying one another, acting faithlessly, acting unfaithfully, which was profaning Yahweh's sanctuary. And the question is, what was this treacherous and breaking covenant type of action that they were doing? They were marrying the daughter of a foreign god. That's right. They were marrying outside their covenant community. What's the big deal, though? What's the big deal of getting married to a woman of a different country? Is God ethnocentric? Does God hate non-Israelite? Doesn't God love the world and want Israel to be a blessing to all the nations? And if they were to marry a woman of a foreign country, wouldn't that help in God's blessings getting out to the nations? Wouldn't they be a positive influence and a godly influence to the non-Israelite? If an Israelite gets married with a foreigner, wouldn't that influence the foreigner to see the glory of God so that they may turn to worship Yahweh? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. This was detestable to God because he commanded them not to marry foreigners. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 to 4 says this, and you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, and you shall not take his daughter for your son. For me, and so they will serve other gods. The anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you, and he would quickly destroy you. According to Deuteronomy, marrying outside would turn them away from the Lord because it would turn them to serve other gods. Does that mean we're weak? Does that mean that we can't be a positive influence to those outside the covenant community? Absolutely not. That's not the point. The point isn't whether we're weak or strong, but the point is the fact that idolatry is subtle and readily possible. Idol worshipers were going to subtly turn our hearts away from the Lord. Why should Israelites not intermarry with different nations? Not only because God commanded it, but because of idolatry. The ultimate accusation here is the accusation of idolatry. Friends, religious idolatry is possible and dangerous, and it's subtle. I think it might be helpful for us to um, define what idol is before we deep dive into this topic. According to Tim Keller... An idol is, quote, anything more important to you than God. 
anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you what only God can give, close quote. That's from Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. That makes sense. You might be thinking yes and yes. We want to guard, our, guard ourselves from idolatry, but marrying the daughter of a foreign god, that sounds ancient. We don't do that anymore. Well, in our present society, a Christian marrying someone who's not a Christian has become a foolish thing to do, but not necessarily sinful thing to do. But saints, I want to tell you the truth. You are sinning against the Lord if you are marrying someone who is not a Christian. <gasps> yeah. I was talking to one of my coworkers a few weeks ago. I'm a banker at Bank of America. And as I was talking with my coworker a couple weeks ago, she's a Roman Catholic by tradition, not really by practice. She was telling me about her experience at the confession booth. At the confession booth, before she got married, she was confessing her sins to the priest. And the priest eventually said, I'll use a fake name, Maria, you ought not to marry that guy. And Maria was pissed, upset. What? How dare you tell me not to marry my fiance? In what world and imagination do you have the audacity to tell me that? You don't have that authority. She was floored. She felt offended because she felt as if her private space was invaded. Obviously, we're not Roman Catholics here. And we believe Roman Catholics to be a false church because of what they believe about justification by faith alone. But the type of surprise that my coworker felt is also felt by a large portion of Christian community. That Christianity belongs to a private part of our lives, but not filling the entirety of our lives. But I want to tell you that Christianity is not a portion of your life in the corner, but your entire life. Friends, if you're not a Christian joining us today, thanks for joining us. You're always going to be welcomed here unless you physically harm us. I'm not sure what you think of Christianity. You might have heard things about Christianity from your friends, from TV, or from popular culture, but I hope that you're seeing how invasive Christianity is. God isn't going to share his throne with anybody. He will share that with nobody, not even your spouse. It spreads into every area of your life. Should you become a Christian, God will require you to be allied to him above your spouse. Should you become a Christian while being single, God teaches that his lordship extends even to where you set your heart's affections. If you decide to love God, you cannot marry someone who is opposed to him and even indifferent to him. Because indifference to God is an opposition to God. Christians, this means, like I've said before, that we are sinning against the Lord if we choose and commit ourselves to marrying someone who is outside covenant community, who is not a Christian. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse 14 teaches us that we ought not to be unequally yoked with someone who's not a Christian. A little nuance here, though. Christians, right now, if you are married to someone who's not a Christian, God is not commanding you to get a divorce. God actually commands you to stay within that marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, that's what it talks about. But I can't imagine the difficulty that you're facing because your spouse, who plays such a large influence over your life, is not showing allegiance, ultimate allegiance to Christ. That might pull you away and influence you in the other direction. May you be strengthened today to keep praying and keep gospelizing and keep walking in faithfulness, not doubting God's goodness and might because he is with you in your trials. So, Judah has acted faithlessly, hindering their loyalty to God. And we just talked about how, right? Marrying daughter of a foreign god. They have profaned the Lord's sanctuary. That was verse 11, but the preceding verse gives us a reason not to do such a thing. A reason not to act faithlessly against one another. What is that reason? Look down with me to verse 10. All of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Let's stop there. This is an if-then statement. The two questions that you see, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Is saying, of course there's one father. Of course there is the one father who created us. And if if that father created us, then why are we acting faithlessly against each other? In other words, this is God, this is our father, then we ought not to act this way. Saints, who God is to us dictates how we relate to each other. Because who God is to us changes our relationship with each other. BBC family, look around. Look at the people around you. They were strangers years ago. I mean, think about five, ten years ago. You didn't know the person who was next to you except siblings. I mean, even me. You might not even know me if you're a guest here who's a Christian. But there is a new reality that has been formed because we're in Christ. We call each other brothers and sisters because that's what we are. If that's the case, we ought not to act faithlessly, betraying each other. Because who God is to us changes our relationship with each other. And even how we view others inside and outside the covenant. But although the covenant community had one father and one God who created them, they were acting faithlessly against each other. What's the result? Verse 12, look down with me. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. What is the result? Being cut off. Cut off from the land. Bringing idols and hindering our loyalty to the Lord, the result is being cut off. Even in Leviticus, we see a similar language. If you are unclean, you are to be placed outside the camp, cut off from the people. 
Adam and Eve were cut off from Garden of Eden because of their rebellion. The people of God exiled, cut off from the promised land because of their unfaithfulness. Psalm 37, 9 says this, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Christians, we should be cut off from the land, and we shouldn't inherit the land because we have acted unfaithfully and because we've sinned against the Lord. We're unclean, but we weren't cut off because of someone who was cut off for us on behalf of us, and his name is Christ. He was slaughtered outside the camp, and the Lord turned his face away from him so that he would turn his face to us. We will inherit the land not because we're righteous, but because Christ was cut off and because we're in Christ. May that sweetly comfort us. Now, the second under-the-radar sin that you ought to recognize is your familial unfaithfulness, familial unfaithfulness. So, from verses 10 to 12, we've heard about God's people getting married to the daughters of foreign gods, which is idolatry. But from verses 13 through 16, we see a different problem. What is that problem? What were they doing? Look down with me to verse 13. It says, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. They were covering the Lord's altar with what? What were they covering the Lord's altar with? With tears, with weeping, with groaning, yes. If, think about it. If someone is crying at our gathering, raising their hands, praising the Lord, what are you thinking? Isn't that a sign of their sincerity? Isn't that something to praise God for? Well, it depends. God's people were weeping. The question is why? Why were they weeping here? Because God no longer was receiving their offerings gladly. Does that remind you of a story in the Old Testament in Genesis? Of God regarding an offering of an individual but disregarding an Offering of a different individual? Cain and Abel, yes. Abel's offerings, God was pleased with. But Cain's offering, God disregarded. What was Cain's response? Murder. It was murder. That was the response of Cain when God disregarded his offering. But what about the Israelites here in the book of Malachi? What is their response? When God didn't accept their offering, what was their response? They were weeping, groaning, crying. Isn't that better? Doesn't that show their sincerity? Look down with me to verse 14. It says, they asked the Lord, why? Why are you not accepting our offerings even when we are sincere? The Lord answers, because you've acted faithlessly against your wives. You have divorced your wife and come to offer sacrifices, crying to me, asking why I'm not accepting your offerings. I put you two together. I have gifted you with your spouse, but instead you've broken your covenant with your spouse 
And now you're acting as if nothing is wrong, as if you're innocent with your sincerity. Friends, sincerity is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Being sincere to the Lord is necessary, but insufficient. Sincerely sinning is still sinning. Saints, do you sometimes justify your sins by appealing to God with your sincerity? I mean, this is why we do theology and community, right? Because we may be sincerely mistaken. We need other brothers and sisters around us to see the glaring sin in our lives so that, that we sometimes miss. Now, as we go to the next verse, verse 16, verse 16 is one of the hardest verses to translate, translate in the Old Testament. When you look at different translations such as NASB, LEB, NIV, ESV, the translations are vastly different for verse 16. And that's because it's hard to translate. But I think more of an accurate translation comes from NASB or LEB translations. Translated, for I hate divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. And this is the central reason behind God not accepting the sincere offerings of his people, because God hates divorce. What the people of God were doing in divorcing their wives was stating that God, whom, stating to God that whom God had given them was not right and not enough. That is, God doesn't know what I need, and God didn't give me what I need he has made a mistake in giving me this spouse. They were functionally stating, I don't want her or him. I want her. I want something else. I know that this something else is better for me. I know what's best for me, not you. You don't know what's good for me. That's what they're functionally saying. Isn't that an audacious claim? That God doesn't know what he's doing? But that's what they were doing functionally. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be faithful in the marriage that God has brought into our lives. God, if you're married, God put you two together. So let not man separate what God has joined together. Be ever faithful to your spouse because God delights in that. And God has gifted you with your spouse. That's God's doing, not ultimately your choice. Penultimately, but not ultimately. So praise the Lord for your spouse and be ever faithful. So if God has joined marriages, what are we to do in response to it? The command is, watch ourselves so that we might not act treacherously or faithlessly against the wife of our youth. Uh, a quick word for those who have been divorced or who have divorced. God is with you and he sees you. If you have divorced your spouse in the past, call is to repent, but repentance doesn't necessarily mean finding that spouse that you have divorced. 
but asking for forgiveness if you have sinned against her or him. But Christ has covered it as you repented. A word for those who have been divorced, God sees you and loves you and desires the best for you. Let not your present circumstance or past circumstance dictate how you view God. God's word does. If you need a reminder, ask a brother or a sister to remind you of God's goodness to you. The third and last under the radar sin that you, might, you ought to recognize is your belittling view of God's justice. Belittling view of God's justice. Look down with me to verse 17. To verse 17. It reads, You have wearied the Lord with your words. God, through his prophet Malachi, was accusing his people of making him feel wearied. Now, isn't that a strange way to describe God? Have you thought about that? I mean, the God that we know of, that we believe in, according to Scripture, never sleeps, never gets tired. But what? Wearied? A mere creation wearying the Lord with their mere words? How can that be? Well, this is called anthropomorphic language. You don't need to remember that word. It just means that scripture attributes humanly elements to God to describe something about God that would help us to better understand him. For example, in the book of Exodus, it says that God stretched his hand against Egypt. Did God literally stretch his hand against Egypt? No, not literally. But that phrase helps us to understand something about God better. God is spirit, so he doesn't literally have hands. But these humanly elements are attributed to God to help us better understand a concept that God was attempting to convey. So how were they making God weary by what they were saying? What did they say? God's people said, in verse 17, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. Or else... Where is the God of justice? Let's stop there. What they were saying was, God, is, God delights in evil acts. God delights in wickedness. Isn't that a foolish thing to say? They're uttering such foolishness. Don't they know better? Well, put yourself in their shoes. They saw themselves being destroyed. They were weak and insignificant. They returned to the promised land. They were rebuilding the wall and temple foundation was built. But the older folks were crying because they were comparing that temple to the glorious past. And they're looking at other nations who are thriving. I mean, God, look at them. They're thriving. Oh, God must think that wickedness is actually good and God must delight in them. In that way, they disdainfully looked down upon and doubted God's justice. Friends, we utter what we believe. We see and we utter not merely by what we see, but what we believe about what we see. There's something deeper to that. So be careful what you say and catch what you say. Because as you say it, 
you are functionally displaying what you do believe. So what they were saying, they were displaying what they believed. What were God's people saying about God and his justice? First, that God must love evildoers. And they were being envious of those evildoers. They observed rampant wickedness from different nations, but they seemed to thrive. God must love them. God must delight in evildoers. Second, they thought God's justice is absent, falsely believing that God will never judge. They looked at the foreign nations and wicked nations, and God wasn't judging them, so they thought, God isn't judging them. God will never judge them. So they failed to believe that the judgment is coming later. Lastly, they were neglecting the patience of God in their statement. A question for us to ponder. So why doesn't God judge the evildoers? Why hasn't he done it? One of the reasons, his patience. Do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis? What was God doing? God was waiting patiently until their sinfulness was, was ripe for his wrath. What about Romans chapter 1? It says that God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to their sinfulness. He delivered them over to their sinful desires. But God didn't judge them there then according to our standards. But he gave them over to their sinful desires, letting them do what they wickedly desired. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, it says this. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and dis disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jews and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. So the question was, why doesn't God judge evildoers now? Because in the last days, he will judge them. Judgment is coming. That's final judgment is coming, but it hasn't come Yet, God's wrath is being stored up for the day of his wrath. So, if you're uh, a parent, you might understand this. I have uh, two toddlers and one young baby. And sometimes, I am storing up wrath. <laughs> Unrighteous wrath. And it can snap and I have to ask my kids for forgiveness but God's wrath is unlike us he is storing up wrath and in his right and perfect time he will judge so when we ask God why are they judged right now well because his judgment hasn't come yet. And that's not your timing. That's not my timing. But God's timing. He will judge when he seems, when he will come. When he comes finally. But you might constantly ask, well, why not now? 
if you're like me, because of his patience. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Think about it. Think about when you became a Christian. What if the Lord came before you became a Christian? Aren't you thankful for his patience? He wants all not to perish, but have eternal life. Christians, are you wearing the Lord with your jaded sight? Are you disdainfully looking down on God's justice because it's not being played out according to your standards and your timing? And are you perhaps even envious of the evildoers? So this was the situation of God's people. They were disdainfully looking down upon God's justice and becoming envious of the wickedness that's seeming to thrive. How does God respond to that situation? People of God are saying, God is not just. God must love wicked and evildoers. That was the situation. But how does God respond to that situation? Friends, when we see a messy situation, we can easily throw our hands up in the air because it's overwhelming and because sometimes we feel fed up with the messy situation that we're having to deal with week in and week out. When we've been over the same issue over and over and over again, thousands and thousands of times, we can get jaded and even become indifferent. But our God ain't like us. He doesn't respond to that type of situation with tiredness, thinking, what are these foolish people doing? No, he responds with promises, with promises that are glorious and comforting. So verse 17 is the situation, situation of God's people sinfully rebelling again through their words. But chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 is how God responds to that situation. And how he responds to that situation is promise. He responds to the situation with promise. What is the promise that God makes? Look down with me to verse 1. See, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Stop there. His promise is to send two messengers. Now, you know what's funny? Malachi in Hebrew literally means my messenger. But here in the promise that he's making, he's saying, I will send two messengers. Put yourself in Israelite's shoes. You've sent Malachi, which means my messenger, nothing's working out. But now you're promising two messengers? Like what? You're going to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different resolution, outcome? Sometimes we can sinfully disregard God's promises because we're blinded by our unbelief. But if we were to meditate 
and truly believe in God's promises, we will see the world with a different set of eyes. But these two messengers were unlike any messengers that they've seen or heard. The one, the first one, he comes to clear the way before God. He was to function like a herald. In the days of kings and queens, there used to be servants who would herald the arrival of its king so that people might pay rightful respect and disposition to the king. The herald would come before the king and say, hear ye, hear ye, here comes the king. It might be like a, a general walking into uh, a company of soldiers, and the company of soldiers would say, attend, hut. So this messenger was to function like a herald. And after this messenger, who clears the way, will come messenger of the covenant. So there's two messengers. The messenger who comes first, who will clear the way, and messenger of the covenant, who will show up in the temple, suddenly show up to his temple. And that's the person that we've all been waiting for. He is finally going to show up. And this is the promise that God makes in response to God's belittling of his justice. When my kids belittle me in their statements with jokes, I wish I can confidently say that I respond patiently and kindly. But the Lord does here. He responds to the situation with kindness and glorious promise. Look down with me to verse 2. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to stand when he appears? This messenger, when he comes, a messenger of the covenant, when he comes, no one will be able to stand when he appears. This is a language of judgment. God is saying, yes, judgment is coming through the messenger of the covenant. Who can stand and endure? And the answer that Malachi is implying is no one. No one can endure and stand before this messenger of the covenant. Why? Because of two reasons. Because the messenger of the covenant is like a refiner's fire. Second, because after this messenger will come final judgment. So first, the messenger of the covenant is like a refiner's fire. He's not a fire who consumes and eats everything in its way, but a fire that is refining. He'll be like a launderer's bleach, cleaning what is dirty, making white what is not white. And finally, these offerings will please the Lord. In Malachi chapter 1 and 2, God was rebuking his people of the offerings that were being offered. He's saying, get rid of these offerings because it's useless fire in front of me. It's unacceptable, but this messenger of the covenant, when he comes, he purifies, he refines his people, and the offerings of his people will be pleasing. The question that I was asking is, how have the sons of Levi been refined and purified? How have the sons of Levi been purified now that the Lord has come? Well, we are holy nation, holy priesthood, we have been refined. I mean, brothers and sisters, think about when you first became a Christian and then compare that to now. How have you changed? The Lord has changed you drastically. 
The things that you're thinking about now and struggling about now in comparison to what you were thinking about before when you, when you first became a Christian, your knowledge of God and closeness to the Lord changed. How you view the world in light of what you believe about God has changed. Praise the Lord for his refinement. And refinement, brothers and sisters, come through trials. And maybe you're in the thick of it now. But these various types of trials and sufferings are the fire that the Lord is utilizing to refine your faith, my faith, and allegiance to Christ. It leads us to know that we're not gods and kings. We don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. You don't either. We need Jesus every day. Our trials lead us to come to an end of ourselves and to cling to Jesus, the comforter of the weak. That's the one who bears our burdens and who gives us his light burden because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yet in the midst of this truth, you and I can feel that our refinement isn't done. Our indwelling sin is evident. If you're like me, you're frustrated with your sin. You, you, you see your sin every day and you're wondering, when, God? When will I be done with this sin or that sin? When will I be able to enduringly be kind to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my kids, to my wife? When will I be able to get rid of my self-centeredness and bentness towards my own gain and advancement over against that of my coworkers and my neighbors? When will I be able to free myself of love of money? When will I be able to fully please the Lord? Saints, it's clear that our refinement isn't done yet. But be assured that it has begun for every believer in this room. Brothers and sisters, make note of this. If you and I are in Christ, then he has begun his refinement. This implies that he won't abandon impure people like us. Church family, he is not done with us. Take comfort that he's not done with us. He is refining us even in our doubts, questions, sins, seasons of highs and lows. How can we know this for certain? Ephesians 5, verse 27. Christ gave himself for the church to present the church to himself in splendor, radiantly, holy, and blameless. Christians, do you realize that God is pleased with you? That God is pleased with me? And you might be asking, how can God be pleased with me? If God were to know what had happened this past week of my sins, of my filth, how can the Lord who is holy and righteous be pleased with me? Brothers and sisters, God being pleased with you doesn't depend on you. It depends on Christ. God is pleased with you because of his beloved son. If you're a, not a Christian joining us, you might think that God is pleased with you. 
Or you might think God is love. I don't have any beef with him, so he must not have any beef with me. That is absolutely false. He is rightly angered by you, but he is patient with you now. But his judgment is coming. Friends, we all will be judged one day. Whether you're a Christian or not, sitting here, we will all be judged one day. No one is righteous, not even one. That's why God sent his son. And his son lived that perfect life that we were commanded to live, but we couldn't live. Yet Christ died on the cross for the sins of those who would repent and turn to trust in Christ. So friends, if you're not a Christian joining us today, the good news is that you can repent today and turn to trust in Christ today and receive forgiveness from God and wait faithfully for God's final restoration with us. But be assured that judgment is coming. And this is a nice segue to verse 5. Second reason why no one is able to stand and endure the coming of the messenger of the covenant is because after that messenger comes, only then will final judgment come. Then will God be ready to witness against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, oppress hire workers, widows, fatherless, who deny justice to the resident alien. Do you really think that God is staying silent and far away from those who are being oppressed? Do you think that God has closed his eyes and turned his face away from those who are beaten, mocked, and unfairly treated? No, he is coming in judgment. And saints, the messenger who clears the way before him has come. He did herald the coming of the king. We read about that in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. That messenger was... JTB, our homie, John the Baptist. Saints, the messenger of the covenant has come 2,000 years ago. Remember, messenger of the covenant will come suddenly in his temple? Listen from Matthew 21. It says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And in the temple, the blind and the lame came to him, came to Jesus, and he healed them. Jesus did show up. Jesus did clear the temple. And now we are awaiting Awaiting for final judgment. The day when the book of life will be finally opened. When final justice will be administered. In that day, no one will be able to say, I got away with this. Church family, are you functionally belittling God's justice by being envious of evildoers? By falsely believing that God will never judge? or by neglecting to acknowledge God's patience for the world, tremble at his word today and wait patiently for God's justice to be finally administered. Brothers and sisters, we are waiting for something. 
Life is filled with waiting, but what we're ultimately waiting for is the second coming of our Savior. He will come and he will restore all things. So until then, let us recognize, fight to recognize these under the radar sins so that we may faithfully wait for God's final restoration. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I know that your word is not preached in vain. It always accomplishes its purposes. We pray that we would get to enjoy Christ all the more as we hear your word. Help us to treasure your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. And help us to search and recognize these sins that are so subtle that we would turn away and repent and turn to trust in Christ in fresh new ways so that we might wait faithfully for your final return, for your final restoration in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, at this time,